Welcome to the Choate Family Office podcast series. On this show, we explore important topics related to investing, managing risk, and sustaining long-term wealth across generations. We believe that all investors can learn from the ways that successful families manage their wealth. Hi all, my name is Renat Lompau. I'm a principal attorney in the Wealth Management Group at Choate Holland Stewart. I am joined today by Jess Lambert and Christine Wright. Jess is also a principal attorney at Choate. She and I specialize in advising high net worth clients on all legal and tax aspects of their wealth management needs. Christine is a portfolio manager at Choate Investment Advisors, where she works closely with our clients to develop tailored investment recommendations. Christine also holds a CFP designation. Today we're talking about GRAPs, which is a very popular estate planning technique. Jess, I'd like to start with a question for you. What is a GRAT and why is it called that? So a GRAT is an irrevocable trust for a fixed term of years. GRAT stands for Grantor Retained Annuity Trust. It's called that because the grantor contributes property to the trust and retains the right to receive back annuity payments from the trust. Most commonly, the annuity payments are annual and come due on the anniversary of the funding date. But the rules provide that the actual payment to the grantor may be made at any time within 105 days after the annuity date. The annuity payments cannot, however, be made in advance of the payment date. For that reason, it's important to consider the cash flow constraints on the grantor when deciding which assets will be used to fund the grant. And if cash flow is a concern, it's a good idea to model that out in advance. Importantly, the annuity payments are structured to return to the grantor the entire value of the assets contributed to the grant, plus the required amount of interest. So because the grantor gets back assets equal in value to what he or she put in, there's no gift upon the funding of a grant. What this means is that a grant uses up no gift tax exemption. The key to a successful grant is that if the assets contributed to the grant appreciate at a rate higher than the required statutory interest rate, which we often refer to as the hurdle rate, then all the appreciation in those assets passes to the named remainder beneficiaries completely free of gift and estate tax at the end of the grant term. And Jess, how is that interest rate determined? So that interest rate is determined by the IRS each month, and the applicable rate is based on the month in which the grant is funded. So in general, the IRS interest rate follows prevailing market rates. At the moment, it's at an all-time low at 0.6%, and will be decreasing even further to 0.4% in August. So for that reason, right now is a really great time to create new grants because the interest rate hurdle to a successful grant is extremely low, which creates a significant opportunity to pass assets tax-free to the beneficiaries. You mentioned that a grant has a fixed term of years. How is that term of years determined? And what happens at the end of the term? So the term of the grant is chosen by the grantor when the grant is first created. The minimum duration for a grant is two years, and that's a very popular choice for many of our clients. But longer grants are also common, and some clients decide to establish grants for three, five, or even 10 years. The choice of an optimal grant term is driven by a few factors. Short-term two-year grants are popular because they allow the grantor to quickly capture investment upside and transfer it to the grant beneficiaries. On the other hand, choosing a longer term allows the grantor to lock in the current very low interest rates, which may be attractive if the assets held in the grant are expected to increase in value over a longer period of time. So as I mentioned, the grant term ends when all of the required annuity payments have been made. At that time, any remaining grant assets, being the investment appreciation over and above the hurdle rate, will pass to the beneficiaries named in the grant, who are chosen by the grantor. Typically, the remainder beneficiaries will be the grantor's children or a trust for their benefit. And does that mean that the grantor has to decide right at the outset who the remainder beneficiaries will be? Not necessarily. 
it is possible to structure a grant to defer the decision about who the specific remainder beneficiaries are until the end of the grant term. This is done by appointing an independent trustee to serve when the grant ends and giving that trustee the power to decide how the remaining grant assets will benefit the class of permissible beneficiaries chosen by the grantor. Perhaps on a related subject, is it possible for a grant to fail? Yes, yeah, so a grant will be unsuccessful if the assets in the grant do not appreciate over and above the hurdle rate for the month of funding. But a really nice feature of a grant technique is even if the grant is unsuccessful, all of the grant assets will revert back to the grantor. In that case, assuming the grant was properly administered, the grantor will be in exactly the same position as if he or she never funded the grant. In other words, there's very little downside to a properly structured and administered grant. And from an investment perspective, it's important to keep in mind that an unsuccessful or a failed grant does not actually mean you made a poor investment choice. It just means that the assets did not appreciate more than the hurdle rate, so you're not able to pass on a tax-free gift. However, the assets in the grant are owned by the grantor and are really looked at as part of a broader portfolio. So they would have been owned regardless of the grant. It's not really a fail in that sense. Christine, to pick up on that point, uh, from an investment perspective, are there particular types of assets that are best suited for a grant and are most likely to end with success? Yes, Renan, that's a great question. As we've talked about, GRATs are specifically designed to transfer the appreciation from assets in the GRAT during the term. For that reason, it's best to fund GRATs with assets that are expected to experience significant growth, either through market movements for publicly traded assets or through a liquidity event for privately held investments. So when thinking about that funding decision, are you able to suggest some best practices or perhaps rules of thumb? Yes, so there are a couple of recommended best practices to maximize the effectiveness of a grant. First, you want to choose assets that are expected to go up in value quickly or have the ability to move up quickly. Essentially, assets with a lot of volatility. There are many catalysts that could cause an asset to appreciate, but a prime example is right after a large market decline when prices are depressed, similar to like what we experienced in March of this year. Because GRATs allow us to capture the upside for the remainder beneficiaries while keeping the downside risk with the grantor, volatility actually works in our favor here. The second thing to consider is that it's usually best to fund GRATs with either a large single asset or single stock position because those exhibit the most volatility. Some of the most successful GRATs we've funded have been with large individual stock positions that clients were holding as part of a broader portfolio. However, there are times when a client does not have a concentrated stock position like this. So another good option is publicly traded funds within the same asset class. And that means they're likely to experience similar market movements. For example, you could fund a grant with mutual funds that hold US stocks. This really allows us to zero in on the expected increase in the value of one asset or one asset class. What about a situation where the client wants to fund the grant with many different types of investment assets? So in that case, Renat, we think it's really better to contribute each different type of investment to its own separate grant. And that way you avoid having a scenario where positive and negative returns on different holdings cancel each other out, which would ultimately result in an unsuccessful grant. So from a portfolio construction standpoint, diversification is a really a good thing with a broader portfolio because it helps reduce volatility. But here with a GRAT, essentially less diversification is better.
you know, as I mentioned before, keep in mind that even if a particular asset underperforms the hurdle rate, there's really no investment downside to putting it in a GRAT. Each successful GRAT can pass on its appreciation to the remainder beneficiaries, and each unsuccessful GRAT can revert back back to the grantor without diluting the winners. That's very interesting. Um, just to follow up on that, any other considerations or, or operational best practices that you would recommend following? So yes, there are a few other things that are helpful to consider. For example, something that Jess talked about earlier and touched on is that it's helpful to model out cash flow changes associated with contributing assets to a GRAT and factor in any changes in dividends that the grantor will no longer be receiving. Some clients really depend on the income generated by their investments, so it's important to understand that income generated by the assets moved to the GRAT won't be available to the grantor for that term of the GRAT while those assets are, are inside the trust. Another item to consider is that many clients like to roll over the GRAT annuity payments into new GRATs. And this means that when the original GRAT makes annuity payments back to the grantor, the grantor contributes those annuity payments to a new GRAT in order to continue capturing further investment upside from the investment assets. And then finally, from more of an operational perspective, we also find that it's helpful to add a small amount of cash to our GRATs and this helps cover any account fees and other administrative expenses of the GRAT without having to sell any of the holdings. To go back to the funding conversation just a moment ago, in terms of you know, actual dollars, is there a typical or recommended perhaps funding amount? So there's no set minimum amount, but essentially the way to think about it is that larger GRATs are likely to be more effective in terms of transferring wealth in a tax-free manner. So as an example, if you funded a GRAT with $100,000 and it outperforms the hurdle rate by 10%, you'd only be able to transfer a $10,000 gift to the remainder beneficiaries, which we think is likely easier and less expensive to do with just an outright gift. However, say you funded a GRAT with $10 million and that outperforms by 10%, you would then be transferring $1 million to the beneficiaries, which is much more with, worthwhile. So for this reason, most clients that we work with fund grants with at least a few million dollars and often with tens of millions of dollars. So if the grantor wanted to make the grant more effective, is it possible to add assets to an existing grant after it's been funded? So the answer there, unfortunately, is no. Grants are subject to several very specific tax rules, and one of those rules is that a grant can be funded only once and cannot receive additional contributions of assets. So that's why when we fund a grant, either with multiple securities or assets from multiple accounts or with even single asset and some cash, as Christine mentioned, it's extremely important for all of those assets to be transferred to the grant on the same day. Let's talk about those tax rules in more detail. How are grants treated for tax purposes? So when we talk about grants and taxes, it's important to keep in mind three different sets of tax rules. So we'll go through those one by one. The first set of tax rules is the income tax rules. For income tax purposes, a grant is treated as a special kind of trust called a grantor trust. The specific rules are complicated, but the key point is that for income tax purposes, all of the grant's assets and taxable income are treated as though owned directly by the grantor and as though the grant did not exist. These income tax rules offer some very compelling planning opportunities. First, the funding of a grant is a complete non-event for income tax purposes. That's to say, if the assets contributed to a grant have built-in gain, as is very often the case, 
there's no gain realization on the way in. Second, all transactions between the grantor and the grant are also completely ignored for income tax purposes. For example, it's extremely common for grants to make their required annuity payments back to the grantor in kind using a portion of the assets held in the grant. These annuity payments also do not trigger gain realization. On a related subject, the grantor can at any time during the grant term exchange assets held in the grant for other assets or cash of equal value owned by the grantor personally. These asset swaps are also completely ignored for tax purposes. Jess, I know there are a few more tax issues to cover, um, so let's come back to those in a second. But for now, I have a question for Christine. Why would the grantor want to swap assets between himself or herself and the grant? So that's a great question, Renat. And essentially, an asset swap can be a really useful tool to lock in the grant winnings in the middle of a grant term. For example, if the grant assets have appreciated rapidly and there's a potential that they could decline again before the term ends, the grantor can swap those volatile assets at that specific point in time and then replace them with more stable assets like cash or bonds. This effectively locks in the grant's success until the end of the term. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks, Christine. Jess, let's go back to the tax conversation. Right, so we were discussing the income tax rules that apply to grants. So far, we've covered several consequences of grantor trust status, and there are a few more we should talk about. Because the grantor is treated as the tax owner of all assets held in the grant, if the grant sells all or a portion of its assets during the grant term, the capital gain liability will have to be paid by the grantor out of his or her own assets. This has two consequences. On the one hand, it may present cash flow issues for the grantor, who has to come out of pocket with respect to the grant's tax liability. On the other hand, this feature effectively allows the grant assets to grow on an after-tax basis for the benefit of the remainder beneficiaries, which further increases the effectiveness of this planning technique. On a related subject, it's important to note that the amount of capital gains will be determined with reference to the grantor's original tax basis in the asset. This is true both during the grant term and also later when the remainder beneficiaries eventually decide to sell the assets they received from a successful grant. As a result, when deciding to implement a grant, it's important to weigh the gift and estate tax savings against the income tax consequences of losing the basis step up that would have occurred if the grantor had held on to the assets until his or her death. And the final income tax consideration is that the grant does not need to file a separate income tax return. Instead, all taxable income, including capital gains, realized by the grant will be reported on the grantor's own income tax return. Likewise, the grant does not need its own taxpayer identification number and can use the grantor's social security number for tax reporting purposes. So beyond these income tax rules, are there any other tax considerations, perhaps from a gift and estate tax perspective? So as I mentioned earlier, grants are an especially attractive planning technique because the funding of a grant does not result in a taxable gift. Similarly, when the grant term ends, any assets passing to the remainder beneficiaries are also not subject to any gift or estate taxes. Even though the funding of a grant has no gift tax consequences, it's very important to report the funding of a grant to the IRS on a gift tax return. A gift tax return is a separate filing from the regular income tax return, and general is due at the same time. Also, it's important to note that gift tax returns are a specialty, and we always advise clients to hire accountants with deep expertise in all the relevant gift and GST tax rules to avoid potentially costly mistakes. And we as estate planning lawyers like to review those drafts of the gift tax returns before they're filed with the IRS. Yes, but if there's no taxable gift, why file a gift tax return at all? 
So that's a great question, Renat. There are two reasons to report the funding of a grant to the IRS. First, if a grant's funded with non-publicly traded assets, the filing of a return starts the statute of limitations on a possible valuation challenge by the IRS. And second, it's a best practice to make some technical generation skipping transfer tax elections with respect to the grant in the year of funding. You mentioned GST taxes, those generation skipping transfer tax rules. I know they're pretty complicated when they apply to uh, trusts and grants specifically. Could you speak um, about them in a little bit more detail? Yeah, sure. So, so the third set of relevant tax issues are the GST tax rules. And as I mentioned before, grants don't use any of the grantor's gift and estate tax exemption. But for GST tax purposes, the rules are different. And a result of that is that grants don't offer the same GST tax benefits as they do for gift and estate taxes. So specifically, it's not possible to allocate GST exemption to a grant until the end of the grant term. And the amount of GST exemption that will need to be allocated at that time in order to fully protect the assets passing to the remainder beneficiaries from the GST tax is the entire value of the remaining assets. Even those, those very same assets will pass to the beneficiaries without using up any of the grantor's gift and estate tax exemption. So this is why many clients will use grants to benefit only their children and not grandchildren or more remote descendants, although there are exceptions. So if a client really wants to use grants to plan for the grandchildren's generation, are there any good options? Yes, yeah, so there's one specific way to use grants to benefit grandchildren in a tax-efficient way. Under the GST tax rules, grant assets can pass to an ongoing trust that can pay for the grandchildren's educational expenses free of GST taxes, even if the grantor doesn't allocate his or her GST exemption at the end of the grant term. So this is a really great planning opportunity for many clients. Thanks, Jess. That's great. Christine, let's go back to our earlier conversation about the types of assets that are best suited for a grant. Could you speak to some of the pros and cons of funding grants with publicly traded securities as opposed to private investments? Yes, of course. So the chief advantage of using publicly traded securities is that they are very easy to value and transfer. One of the requirements of administering a GRAT is that it's necessary to value the GRAT assets on the day of funding and then again on each anniversary date during the term. And at those times, we need to use the average of the high and low trading values. So as you can see, this is, this is very easy to do for publicly traded assets. In comparison with privately held securities, it's much more difficult. So for a private company, the client would actually need to obtain independent third-party appraisals of the grad assets at least once a year during the term. So this can easily add considerable expense and delays. And just from a legal perspective, any additional issues you're worried about? Yeah, so funding grants with privately held assets can add significant paperwork to document both the initial transfer into the grant as well as the annual annuity payments. And this will almost always involve dealing with lawyers for the private company, which adds to the cost. In addition, funding grants with privately held interests can raise security law issues, which can be very difficult to navigate, not to mention expensive. On that point, let's actually talk about the cost of creating a grant. How much work and legal time is typically involved? So typically, drafting a grant is very straightforward. The best way for clients to manage costs is to focus on the key decisions that need to be made. Those include the desired grant term, who the remainder beneficiary should be, and whether the client wants to retain flexibility to allocate the grant winnings at the end of the term, and also the specific assets to be contributed to the grant. 
And then from more of an investment perspective, we also think it's a good idea to consider preparing any GRAT documentation and establishing the investment account in the name of the GRAT in advance. And then it can be beneficial to wait and take advantage of a short-term dip in, val in values to fund the GRAT. So as an example, if a client had done this type of planning in advance, they could have taken advantage of the large market decline earlier this year. If a client had funded a GRAT towards the end of March with U.S. stocks, as an example, that GRAT would now have appreciated by over 40%. Well, GRATs definitely sound like a great technique with lots of uh, benefits and, and pros. But before we wrap up, Jess, any downsides to GRATs that clients should be aware of? Great question. Yes, there are two important considerations that clients should keep in mind in addition to the points we talked about earlier. First, it's critically important to strictly comply with all the funding and administration rules. This includes, for example, not making any additional contributions to an existing grant, as we discussed earlier, and to make sure to make the annuity payments within the time frame authorized by the IRS rules. The second consideration is that a grant will fail if the grantor dies during the initial term. Just to be clear, there's no tax penalty if that happens but all of the GRAT assets will be included in the grantor's taxable estate as though the GRAT had not been funded. The required annuity payments will continue to be paid out to the grantor's estate over the course of the GRAT term. So this means that even though all of the GRAT assets will be included in the grantor's estate, the assets won't be returned to the estate until the prescribed annuity dates, which can pose liquidity constraints on the estate. This is another factor that's important to keep in mind when setting the duration of the GRAT, especially for older clients. Some clients choose to purchase term life insurance policies to provide liquidity for their estate if they happen to die during the GRAT term. Well, great. Jess and Christine, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights. I definitely enjoyed our discussion very much, and I hope everyone did as well. Thank you, Renat. Thank you again for listening. You can also listen to more episodes in the newsroom of chodaie.com and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The information provided in this recording is for informational purposes only. While Chode and Chode Investment Advisors make every attempt to present accurate information, the information in this recording may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and it may become outdated over time. The views expressed on this podcast should not be construed as advice for a given situation. If you have questions about your specific situation, you should consult your attorney for legal advice, and you should consult your financial advisor. Moreover, short investment advisors may decide to select investments on a different basis at any time and without prior notice. Finally, as everyone should know, past performance is not a guarantee of future performance.